Hello, and welcome to Voices of Recovery, a podcast about life after addiction from Serenity Lane. Last week, we talked to Jill R., who was getting ready for her first sober Thanksgiving. This week, we're talking to Lauren L., who has a few sober holidays under her belt and some great advice to share about managing expectations and setting healthy boundaries. My parents met in AA, um, so I had known uh, that alcohol could be a problem. Um, I just didn't have any experience with it being a problem. I was raised in a sober home. Um, I thought alcoholics were really great people (laughs) because all of the ones that I knew were sober. Um, So uh, I had like a pretty great childhood. Sadly, Lauren's happy home was not to last. There was heartbreak and then loss, and Lauren's family was forever changed. My father was diagnosed with terminal cancer when I was 11 and passed away when I was 13. Um, And things got a little bit rough after that. Uh, My mom didn't, didn't do very well with that and my adolescence became pretty um, pretty rough (laughs) Um, so I wasn't really a super young drinker I did start you know I I definitely drink in high school and when I drank I binge drank Um, I knew that it was not healthy Uh, and I also uh, engaged in some some other pretty dysfunctional behavior um, like self, self-harm self and eating disorder stuff. And then once I got, I was probably 18 or 19, I started going to college parties with my friends and I wasn't actually going to school. Um, but I started drinking at college parties and if you are a binge drinker, college parties are the place to be. Um, that's where I... I really, things kind of took off for me as far as drinking was concerned, and I didn't really know how to drink any other way. That was just what I did, and it was very socially acceptable at that point. And, um, you know, my party trick was uh, vomiting and coming back to the party and drinking more. And that was just like a thing that was considered pretty cool amongst my peers. So I did that for a long time. Um in my early 20s, early to mid 20s, and then sort of in your, at some point you realize like it's not as cute as it was in the beginning. Um, I did sort of venture into drug use as well. There were drugs I was exposed to that were, um, that enabled me to drink more and also not vomit in public, which was a a really cool uh, discovery for me at that point in my life. And so I I did a lot of that, and there were times where I was like, okay, well, I just just stop using drugs and, like, just drink um, because that's normal. And all all this while, right, I have this voice in my head saying, like, your parents met in AA. (laughs) Um, You know that this isn't okay, but I would, like, look at the the checklist. They have this little checklist. Um, You know, it's 10 questions or something, and then it starts with, do you black out? And I wasn't a blackout drinker. I've never blacked out. So I I was like, no, 
And then I think I was yes to every other question, but like not being a blackout drinker was enough to make me uh, decide I was I didn't have a problem. While trauma, turmoil, and heartbreak can all accelerate a person's drinking and using, success can be a trigger too. In my late 20s, I got a, a really good job, and I was really proud of myself. And uh, I started drinking like an adult. Um, there were finger quotes there that you're not going to see, but uh, by drinking like an adult, I also meant that mean that I started drinking by myself and found that acceptable. Uh, so there was there was a lot of that, but I never you know went to work drunk or or drink on my way to work or did anything like that. I did start um, using. Uh, some drugs again in that period of time. And I was still operating like a very functional uh, work life. I was showing up to work. I was doing a decent job. Um, I think I was definitely emotionally unstable. (laughs) Um, But I wasn't causing a huge ruckus um, at work. I was getting good reviews. I was well-liked. And um, I think people, maybe people were like, oh, you're kind of crazy. But it was like endearing on some level. I don't know. Over the next five years, Lauren would continue to precariously balance her work life with an increasingly unstable personal life. She moved 17 times over those five years, finally landing in Portland. That's kind of where, where I hit my bottom. Um, I, uh... You know, had met a guy when I when I moved there, so I was instantly in like a very codependent, um, not healthy relationship. And my friends that I moved there with, who were my best friends in the world, I thought, um, you know, were were really my best friends in the world to drink and use with. And once we kind of separated from that, it became very difficult. Um, our relationship was not the same. It's hard to have a, a really healthy relationship with people that you never had a healthy foundation with. And so I started, I got a job at a a really good hospital. And that job was in the oncology department. And I had always said that I would not ever work in oncology because that's what my dad died from. And um, it was a pretty triggering experience. You know, that was a, it was a traumatic experience at uh, 11 and 12 to have my father sort of deteriorate in front of me um and he died in our home so it was just very I'm grateful for that um that I got that time with him but it's also triggering so uh I started working on oncology and it was very clear that I had some pretty severe PTSD from from that experience and I did get uh I did get a therapist, but before I got a therapist, I started drinking to cope with, like, the anxiety and the uh, panic attacks and, like, the flashbacks that I was having while doing this job. Um, So I also broke up with my boyfriend right when I got that job. So it was just, like, a lot lot of of things, and I moved in on my own. So I was living by myself, so I didn't have anyone to put on a show for at home. Um, And... I hit an alcoholic bottom very fast. Um, I was using drugs less because my mental stability was so uh, questionable that I I couldn't use them the way that I had been using them before. Um, 
I did have anti-anxiety medication that was prescribed to me, but uh, at some point there was a uh, someone got the memo that like maybe those were addictive too, and uh, and they weren't overprescribed to me any longer. Um, so I would sort of mix whatever I could, but I started drinking every day, and that was when things really hit the skids for me. Um, I'd always been able to maintain my drinking in front of groups of people. I could drink in front of my family. No one ever questioned me being an alcoholic, um, at least not to my face. Um, but I, I was able. I, ne- I didn't cause scenes. I didn't. I threw up a lot of college parties, but I didn't. As I got older, it really was like I was better off with a drink. Um, so people didn't really question it. But I, I was drinking often, every day. And I was drinking at home by myself. And on the weekends, I would start drinking in the morning. And I knew it was a problem, but I, I didn't know how to fix it. Lauren was in a state often described by alcoholics as step zero. That's when you realize there is a problem, but are powerless to fix it. And I was way too full of shame to tell anyone, including my therapist or my doctor, what was going on. Um, my, I'm one of six kids and, uh, all of my sisters struggle with, with the same disease. Um, my brothers do not. And so I didn't really know, uh, I didn't know what to do. And, um, my, the story of my bottom is actually pretty funny. Um, (laughs) Uh, because I, I decided I was going to just start, uh, pot had just become legal. And so I was like, oh, I'll just start smoking a lot of pot, um, and become like a natural hippie and then I'll be able to give up alcohol. And at that point I was physically addicted to alcohol. So, uh, giving it up without, uh, medical supervision was actually not a super good idea and replacing it with marijuana actually does not. It doesn't hit the same receptors in your body. Um, So I was sort of experimenting with a lot of different kinds of things at that point. Um, And I said I never blacked out, but I did black out um, during my my last weekend hurrah is what I call it. I was dating a guy and we went on a trip and I (laughs) – he said, well, why don't you take two edibles since since – they didn't work. You took one and it didn't work last time. And I hadn't eaten. And I was like, I don't this doesn't like seem like a super good idea, but I'm going to do it. So uh, I did. And I blacked out and I like couldn't feel my legs. And um, I told him I couldn't feel my legs. And he told me I could. And I was like, yeah, but I really can't. And uh, and I uh, ate an entire bag of kiwis naked in my kitchen in front of him. That's one thing I do remember. And also decided I was clairvoyant. Um, so I told all of my friends and family that I had a psychic gift. And um, <laughs> no one really questioned it to my face at that point. But um, I was also playing with my own prescription medications on the dosing on everything. And I really just had like a something weird happened in my brain. And a few days later, um, I was on my way home and I just thought, like, I'm going to kill myself. And that was not something that had ever really 
been a thing that I'd thought about doing, but I really got scared. And um, I called my brother and he told me that I should go to the hospital. And there's also like a pretty big history of mental illness in my family. Um, and I thought this is just what happens to to people in my family, to women when they're 30, they just crack. Um, and so that's what I thought was happening. And I went to the emergency room and I was finally honest with a doctor when he asked me if I drank and how much I drank and if I used drugs and what I was using. And I told him all of the drugs that I used and I told him uh, how much I drank and he told me that he believed that I was an alcoholic and that I needed to go to treatment. And uh, I said, okay. And I cannot tell you to this day what made me say okay. Um, giving up alcohol was never an option for me. Lauren mentions the feeling of cracking, and that's a good way to describe the feeling of hitting a bottom. People in active addiction build walls to hide behind. It is through the crack in that wall that grace may enter. It is in this state of defeat that people become willing and able to change. I got really lucky. You know, Serenity Lane had a bed for me available immediately. And my sister, who was in active addiction at that point, had flown up from California and took me to Serenity Lane. Um, we both, like, drank our way through that trip, which is, it's really insane that we made it through that alive. Um, and I fought with her and said that she was an alcoholic, too, and she should be the one going to treatment. And uh, I don't know what happened, but when we both walked through those doors, um, something changed for both of us. And she got sober three weeks after I did. Um, and is still sober, which is amazing. Um, but, you know, yeah, I don't, I will never know. It was not me that made, made that choice. Um, I'm grateful that there was a social, social worker in the emergency room who could like do everything and put everything together. Cause I don't think I had it in me. Um, and when I got there, Right. I had to like tell my family that I was going to be gone for a month and I had to tell my work that I was going to be gone for a month. And I had I was like, OK, well, the jig is up like you've got to either do this or you're going to be like a real mess up. Um, and so I just decided to do the things that people told me to do. And it's worked out pretty well. Lauren's recovery from addiction included looking beyond her drinking. There were things beneath the surface she would have to face. After a brief stay in the detox unit, she transitioned into the residential setting where the real work began. It wasn't easy. I was really scared. I was scared to, uh, to participate in any of the activities, like um, coming out of detox, though I felt I could already feel myself feeling better. Um, and I I started to go to, to group activities. One of the programs that um, that I was part of that was really pretty life-changing for me was the grief and loss group. Um, I was sort of forced to confront these issues um, that I had spent decades trying to get away from. Um, I wasn't really allowed to properly grieve 
my dad. Um, you know, it just wasn't – my mom wasn't comfortable grieving it and eventually relapsed over it. Um, and uh, so I was taught not to. And it was really uncomfortable for me to um, to confront those uh, – those things in, in in Serenity Lane, but I was able to do it safely. Um, I felt really, really safe doing that. Um, and I was pushed in a way that was really healthy for me. It wasn't, you know, uh, crossing a line. It just pushed me in a way that I needed to be pushed to, to confront um, to confront that grief. Um, because grief is a really interesting thing in that it does not go away because you want it to. And it doesn't go away because you drink and don't deal with it for, you know, 20 years. It uh, just sits there and gets quieter um, until you're faced with a situation where it can't be quiet anymore. When her 28 days in residential treatment were complete, Lauren had a new challenge to face. Reentry into regular life. She had some big decisions to make about her new life in sobriety. I did not want to leave treatment. I was one of those people. Um, there are people who are excited to get out of treatment. I wanted to stay forever. Um, it was the first place that I had felt safe in a really, really long time. Um, I was really terrified of leaving, and I thought about staying longer, um, but it really wasn't an option for me because I had this uh, life, you know, on the outside that I I hadn't completely thrashed my life. Um, my family was not pleased with me, but I still had a job to go back to. Um, my employer wanted me back, which was, you know, insane to me. <laughs> um but I really had to take a look at what I was doing um, and what led me to to that bottom, right? And so I decided that going back to that job was not the best option for me. Um, I had made a lot of friends, and most of them were going to be in the Eugene area. And so I decided to move to Eugene, which is, like, really crazy. I, I didn't want to go back to my apartment in Portland because I didn't want to go live alone. Um, and work in oncology. I was like, I'm just going to put myself back in the same situation. Um, so I moved into an Oxford house, which was not a thing I ever thought I would do. I loved living alone. Um, so living with 10 other women was like not, <laughs> not something uh, that was ever going to be my idea, but it was amazing. Um not everyone has a really positive experience in that environment. I did. Um, I met one of my very best friends. I learned how to stand up for myself. I learned how to, um, like, do things that I still didn't know how to do, even though I was, like, a pretty functional adult before I, uh, before I went to treatment. Um, I got involved in a 12-step program. Mm, I got a sponsor pretty soon after I got out and I started working the steps and that was really life-changing getting really involved in that um and I didn't drink you know most importantly 
I didn't pick up. Lauren was doing the deal. She had made changes and was working a program that was helping her build a support network of people and replace old ideas and behaviors with new ones. She was building a new sober life. Your first year of sobriety, you're learning how to feel feelings that you haven't felt in sometimes a decade or two. Um, And every feeling feels uncomfortable. It all feels uncomfortable and it all feels like you're going to die. And, you know, I learned that my feelings are not going to kill me. Not even the really bad ones. They all pass, but you have to feel them. Um, I made a lot of amazing friends. I got very involved with women um, who were in recovery. And that was a really important step for me to take was to not get involved um, in a romantic relationship uh, because I wasn't good at them. And... uh, You know, I look back at the last couple of years and I'm able to see, like, I'm the person that I always wanted to be. And now I feel like, okay, if that happens, then it happens. But, like, I'm not looking for someone to fix me. I'm not looking for someone to complete me. Um, And I was always looking that, you know, one of the reasons I think my relationships probably always failed was because I was always wait, I was always trying to make another person the other piece, the, the fix, the fix it for my life the completion. And now I'm a complete person. I have my own interests. I have my own likes. I know that I am a quality person. I know that I'm a person with morals and values, and I know what those morals and values are, and I'm capable of living my life in that. Um, And when I get away from that, it feels really bad, and so I don't do it as often anymore. Um, But that took a long time. Expectations are tricky. Many people in recovery are motivated early on by expectations. Maybe they'll save a career or a marriage or win back the respect of loved ones. These things certainly can and do happen, but one of the biggest gifts of recovery is the gift of knowing and accepting yourself. I remember thinking, as soon as I have a year of sobriety, everything will be perfect, and I will get an award and a perfect life for completing this year of sobriety. And it's ridiculous, but it's what I felt and it's what I thought. And um, when that didn't happen, I had to figure out what it was that I wanted. You know, what was this that I was looking for? What was the perfect life award that I was waiting to get? And then I just started to make that happen. You know, I started taking steps to make that happen. And... Uh, I have an amazing, full, beautiful life full of amazing, beautiful people who love me, who I can love in return. And it's not codependent and no one fixes me and no one solves my problems for me. My my sponsor helps. Um, but they give me the feedback and I take what I need and uh, – And I get to be a person that I can love and respect, which is insane because the idea of like loving myself was such a foreign concept to me. Not that I ace it every day or every second of every day, but like I'm closer to it than I've ever been in my entire life.
A theme worth noting in Lauren's story is that of making choices based on protecting her sobriety. Today, she applies that same thinking to setting boundaries with her family. You know, you don't have two alcoholic parents um, and then get a family that is free of free of the disease. Um, so there are definitely um, some people in my family who still definitely suffer from from the disease of addiction. Uh, they're hard for me to be around. Um, I wish it wasn't that way. You know, I want this perfect, uh, you know, ideal of sobriety where I get to like run in and just like be like loving and accepting of all people and all things and um, and go to my family and like save the world, you know, within my family and like show them how great my life is and like they could have this too. And the fact is, is that like at this juncture, I am not there yet. My first holiday was, uh, I did not go home. I couldn't afford it and I couldn't really, the idea of being out, out of sober living for even like a few days was too scary for me. Um, I lived that first year in like a lot of fear. And so my second sober holidays, I was like, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna make a big thing. I'm gonna go home. It's gonna be great. I'm gonna see my whole family. I'm gonna like shine the light of sobriety. Um, and everyone's gonna see how great I am and how great I'm doing. And, you know, I went home and was pretty triggered the whole time. Um, it was difficult and and that's okay. Um, I didn't drink and I didn't use and I came back really grateful. Um, so this year, I have decided that I'm not gonna make that travel. Recognizing that traveling during the holiday plus the time spent with family would be stressful, Lauren found a compromise. I did decide that I would go see my mom and my stepdad in January. And, um, you know, Thanksgiving, it's a little bit too short for me to really go see anyone. And Christmas would be really the time that I would go do that. But it's there's so much going on. And I'm in school and I work two jobs and it's just a lot to try to get away from. Um, so I decided that I would go in January and that way um, – you know, if I think about being sad and not with my family, I have something to look forward to. So that seemed like like the most appropriate action for me to take. And I do want to see my mom and I do want to see my stepdad. I love them. They've um, they've really been there for me as best they can. Um, and I want to show them, you know, like love and respect for that. And they've been through a lot with me, right? Like I was not a real peach. <laughs> um when I was when I was knee deep in in alcohol and drug addiction, I'm not going to see anyone else at this point because because I'm not. Um, I know what triggers me, and that's not to say that we like avoid things, um, but also healthy boundaries, right? And you can have boundaries, and you can have respect for yourself, and like sometimes that means saying no. And I have a bunch of people here who I can spend time with. I'm having like a Friendsgiving thing on Thanksgiving and I haven't figured out what I'm going to do for Christmas yet, but I'm not super worried about it because I've never been left out in the cold um, because I have so many people in my life that 
uh, that care about me and also have similar situations. You know, it turns out that not everyone, much to to my disbelief, has a perfect family and I'm the only one that has any suffering, you know. Um, Most people in the sober community have some sort of, you know, either wreckage or, um, or dysfunction that, that makes the holidays not super easy. So I have a lot of community, um, and that's really helpful. Lauren's hard work is paying off, and today she has a lot to be proud of. I'm in my sixth term at school, which is like an amazing feat for me to do anything for six terms, um, willingly, right? That I, I'm not getting paid for this. <laughs> um, I can show up to work, right? Because you're you're getting a paycheck, but to do something that's like just for the betterment of me and my life, um, I'm really proud of that. I'm getting uh, pretty good grades. I'm studying things that I never thought I could study. Um, I love science and plants, and I'm taking some pretty difficult courses, and I'm doing well in them. Um, I just have to adjust my expectations of, like, what well is sometimes, right? Um, But I'm really proud of myself. You know, I'm, like, pretty independent, and um, I'm discovering just, like, how smart and how uh, hardworking I am. And those were always things I wanted to be but never felt that I was. And... Now I feel them, which is really cool. Lauren is smart and independent. She has built a strong network of sober support, and she has some very special company on her recovery journey. My sister is doing well. She also has a little over two years of sobriety. She, uh, you know, I was in in treatment from what would have been my dad's 50th AA birthday. And my sister got sober on what would have been his 50th AA birthday. Um, and no one knew. So, yeah, she's she's doing well. She's really supportive of me. Um, she's really helpful in, uh, in a lot of figuring this all out, right? She can be a really good person for me to go to because we are sort of like navigating this together. It sounds crazy, right, to say, like, hey, uh, my dead father spoke to me or my dead father had a had a hand in, in getting me to where I am. But, um, you know, the fact is, is that, like, one of the gifts that I've received in sobriety is um, an amazing sense of spirituality. And that spirituality comes with knowing that there are bigger things out there that, like, I don't quite understand. Um, Scientifically, I understand that energy doesn't die, and I feel him with me, you know, uh, and things happen that I, that I can't explain, and I could, I could tell you a lot of stories, but I might sound crazy and also would take up a lot of time, but I know that he is always with me. I know that he would be incredibly proud of me. Um, sorry. And I know that he would be incredibly proud of my sister, and I know that he is always with her, too. I have experienced a connection with my father long after his passing, when I got sober, um, that has been the most amazing experience 
I, I can't put it into words. I can't explain it to, to anyone else, but I know that it exists. Out of the many sober tools in her toolkit, Lauren shared one of her favorites for changing her outlook. I think gratitude is the is the fastest way to shift your energy. Um, I went through actually like a pretty rough patch this summer and I kept looking for reasons like like things that could change it. Um, like I Googled stuff, you know, and one of the things that kept coming up was gratitude, gratitude, gratitude. And my take on gratitude for a long time was like, I can't be grateful for things not going the way that I want them to go. Um, being grateful, like it is impossible to be happy when you get what you want if you can't be grateful for what you have now. So um, I did this gratitude thing where I, I posted to social media every day something that I was grateful for. And that's a really good way to keep me accountable because I told everyone on my Instagram that I was going to do it, right? So, <laughs> so I did. And I found something every day to be grateful for. And what I realized is that most of the things that I'm grateful for in my life are the people in it. Um, I'm incredibly grateful for my community. I'm grateful for really small things like having clean drinking water and being able to pay my bills and, uh, you know, living. I live alone now, which is um, really amazing. I love it. I get to, like, meditate <laughs> quietly. And, uh, and that's something I'm really grateful for. I don't ever think about drinking. And if I if I did, I know what to do, right? And I'm incredibly grateful for my spirituality, um, my connection to something bigger than me. Um, it's been life-changing, and it is not something that happened overnight, and it is not something that I feel every second of every single day. There are minutes and hours and days and weeks sometimes where I don't feel it, but I can always tap into it again. I just have to sit out the other stuff. Something you'll hear in these stories over and over again is the idea that recovery is an ongoing process. Lauren had a lot of great insights to share, but the one that stuck out the most was her understanding that the loss of her father and the grief that that caused would never fully go away. You know, I also thought that that I would be done grieving after being in Serenity Lane. I thought, okay, like, here's the safe space where I was, and I got to confront these, like, dark parts of my life, and now I won't ever have to confront them again. And that's not true either. Grief comes up when it comes up. You know, it's something that it's it's not a thing that you deal with, and it goes away. Um, I thought there was, a, you know, another false belief that I had was if I deal with it, then it'll go away. And and yes, when I deal with it, it lessens and it gets easier, but it doesn't ever go away. I'm always going to be sad that my my dad didn't get to see me grow up. I'm going to be sad that I don't have that connection. But I can be really grateful for the connection I get with him through being sober, which is really, really beautiful. Um the connection I get to have with my sister over that and the bond that we get to to have with that. I get a lot, a lot from it. And there are a lot of acceptance and a lot of um, connection I didn't really think I would ever have again uh, with that loss. Um, a lot of really beautiful things that would take me um, a really long time to explain. <laughs> um, but I'm 
I'm really grateful for for the way that it's all turned out. But that doesn't mean that I don't ever get sad anymore. Even with the sadness, Lauren stays present and rooted in her life. She has stopped trying to quiet her grief or hide from others. She's becoming the best version of herself and embracing her big, beautiful, sober life. It is very hard for me to get away from my life anymore because it's so full. And that is a gift that I've gotten from sobriety. Um, You know, in recovery, I have this, like, huge, beautiful, full life full of people and friends and activities and things to do. And it's hard to get away from. And I don't want to. I have been blessed with the most amazing friends and the most amazing love that, um, you know, it was that feeling that I looked for for my entire life and I finally got it. I thought I got it with alcohol and I thought I got it with drugs. And when that stopped working, I had to get something somewhere else. And the most fulfilled I've ever felt is having true connection with my peers. And that is something that I have now. for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Voices of Recovery. If you like the episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. If you'd like to learn more about our alumni program or be a guest on the podcast, go to serenitylane.org forward slash alumni. Recording and editing of this week's episode by Thaddeus Moore at Sprout City Studios. A big thanks to our guest, Lauren L. See you next time.